This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Hello, I'm Matt Kane, and welcome to Sunday Roast on Virgin Radio Pride. And I hope you've all had a good week. Let's be honest, there's been lots going on. One of the biggest things by far is the extension of COVID restrictions. I know there's lots of um, extreme opinions about this and lots of people are very upset. It's a big blow for several businesses. But the thing that struck me is that it's at times like this that I really appreciate being part of a community. I really think it's at times like this that community comes into its own and knowing that we're all in this together. On that note, one of the things I said on the show last week was that I really wanted Sunday Rose to be inclusive. And it seems we're succeeding because lots of you have got in touch and said just that. Lots of you have said lots of other lovely things too. So I really hope you enjoy this second helping. As usual, everyone's welcome not just to listen, but to get actively involved. If you want to contact us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK and I'm on at Matt Cairn Writer. Or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. So go on, get stuck in. Now, my guests on today's show are brilliant. I'm very excited about them. The first is Charlie Condu. As an actor, he's had countless roles, but you'll probably know him best for his stints on Coronation Street and Holby City. He wrote a popular column for The Guardian about same-sex parenting and he's a patron of several charities including Diversity Role Models and AKT which was formerly the Albert Kennedy Trust. Charlie and I will be joined by leading lesbian commentator and broadcaster Sophia Blackwell. An acclaimed author and poet, Sophia's most recent collection, The Other Woman, is available from Burning Eye Books and was longlisted for the 2019 Polari Prize. Now, this is what we're going to be discussing. First of all, does marriage always have to be about respectability, conformity, heteronormativity, or can it be a defiantly queer political act? Next, with the Euros underway, what's our relationship with football? Does it make us feel triggered and excluded? You can possibly tell by the way I'm saying that, that that's how it makes me feel. Or maybe, depending on our sexuality and gender, even the opposite. Then, is passing privilege, that's the ability to pass for straight, or cis, is that really such a privilege? And finally, lots of the country has had lots of glorious sunshine this week. It's not always lasted everywhere, but how do we feel about the summer and the increased visibility for our bodies? That's the increased scrutiny for our bodies. The Sunday Roast with Matt Kane, Virgin Radio Pride. Hello to my guests, Charlie Condu and Sophia Blackwell. Hello. Welcome to the show. Hello, Thank you very much. Now, I'm going to be having a little chat with each of you a bit later in between our discussions, find out what you're up to. But I'm going to start by getting straight down to business with our first discussion topic, which is marriage. 
So, marriage has a special status and significance in our society, as we saw this week when they announced the extension to COVID restrictions and for some reason weddings are outside that because they're considered so important. Mm. Now, I'm 46 and at the end of this year, I'm getting married, which is very exciting. But as someone who was single for most of his life, and this very much defined who I was and who I thought I was as a queer person, it was part of my identity being different. Part of me feels, although I'm very excited, a bit sheepish about it, like I'm giving in to conformity and respectability. But then you could argue if people have fought for us to have this right, isn't exercising it a political act. Charlie, you're hmm. a married man. What do you think? I am a married man and uh, we've been married for six years last week and together for 16. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting question because when we got married uh, and we waited, in fact, we got married on our 10 year anniversary from our first date. Um, when we got married, it was still quite new and, and we'd been actively campaigning for gay marriage or equal marriage. Um, and... And yet there was still a part of me that kind of thought, oh, I don't want to make a fuss. And we had a really small wedding. There were just like eight of us or something. Our kids were there and, you know, my parents. And essentially that was it. Didn't want to make a fuss about it. And it's only now that I look back and think, I really wish we had kind of gone for it in a big way. Because I do understand that kind of, you know, oh, are you just conforming attitude? But I think part of what I campaigned for for a long time, and certainly with being a parent and having my parenting column in The Guardian was essentially that, saying just because of our sexuality, that doesn't make any difference to how we are as parents or or partners or anything like that. And I think the whole point about equal marriage is that we are equal. We should be able to do exactly what our heterosexual counterparts can do. Yes, but interestingly, something you said in there, it was about, say, it was about showing our sameness. And whilst I totally agree with you some that's the kind of thing that some people take issue with isn't it i'm just going to read out one comment from a listener to sophia i understand i understand the premise of that and the fact that that is it is something that people feel un uncomfortable with but i personally i, I don't know how you mm. feel sophia but i've never felt myself as other i've never thought oh i'm different to everyone else i've thought yeah i fancy men other than that, I'm just a human being like everybody else. And that's why I kind of feel like it's... I, I do feel the same, actually. I've never felt different to anyone else. Right, that's interesting. So let me, let me put this comment from a listener to you, Sophia. This listener says, Getting married isn't part of our culture. It's a straight thing. Any gays or lesbians getting married are letting the side down. Mm. So what do you think about that, Sophia? I think that's quite a punchy statement. I can see where it's coming from. Um, I'm I'm 39 and my old flatmate, who I've lived with for five years, also a lesbian and been with her partner for longer than I've been with my wife. And she doesn't want to get married for exactly that reason. And I do understand that. I understand that if you see yourself as part of a counterculture and if you want to remain in that, then that's perfectly fine. And, and that's your lookout. It has to be about what resonates with you. In my case, my wife is a bit more traditional. So I actually got to sort of sneak hide behind that and be the one going oh well maybe not while well, she was like come on come on let's do it and so um, I, I got to hide behind her a little because yes I wanted the big wedding too and it's one of the things that sort of saddens me a bit because 
I mean, in my head growing up, I always thought I would have the small, tasteful kind of wedding that Charlie <laughs> describes. It was not. It was big and outrageous. And there are people <laughs> now who feel, obviously, restrictions are restrictions, but they feel almost as if they, even after this is over, fingers crossed, they should have the small, tasteful, sort of second marriage type wedding. They shouldn't have the blowout. And I think if that's what you want, and if it's not going to financially ruin you, you should have what, what you want, what vibes with you personally. And when, so when you were getting married, regardless of big or small, was it in your head um, a political statement? I know, I know that um, weddings are by definition a public declaration of your love for each other. And for queer people, that's, that is, whether we like it or not, a political thing, isn't it? Sure, absolutely. And it felt very political to me in a, in a really good way. And that's why I say, you know... We all talk about fighting for equality. That's what pride was. That's and is all everything that we've done. Section twenty-eight. All of all of the rights that we've had to fight for is about equality. It's saying we deserve the same as our heterosexual counterparts, and therefore, the very act of being able to get married. Some people, some gay people, don't want to get married, and that's absolutely fine. Some gay people don't want to have kids. That's fine too, but we should be allowed to if we want to. It's a human right as far as I'm concerned. And I and I do think it's important if you want to that you should be allowed to do it and you should. So what do we do about those queer people who do want to celebrate their difference and feel like part of a counterculture? And, you know, that how do we make them feel like they're not being left behind? When people like the three of us, you two are married, I'm getting married... Um, how do we um, make them feel like they're, they're not excluded or getting it wrong? What do you think, Sophia? I think really the way to support our community is to stand up for their rights and to not say anything that diminishes their relationships and what kind of status they've chosen, whether, for example, they're single or polyamorous or whatever. The language that we choose when we speak to our friends and people that we love shouldn't be critical of them and we should support their decisions and give them the same amount of respect and not just assume that everybody does want to get married, although, of course, some people do. And I was very happy to be given the opportunity. Well, funnily enough, I know a couple who, a gay couple who got married a couple of years ago. They, after marriage had come in, but they opted to have a civil partnership because that they thought that was their way of expressing equ- equality yet difference. <clears throat> yeah, I, I get that as well, and I in fact know of a straight couple that had a, a that were civilly partnered for the same reason. And I think you should be allowed to get a civil partnership. If it's equal, if if straight people have it too. And my issue with when when we had civil partnership but not marriage, everyone was saying, oh, well, it's basically the same thing. And I was saying, well, if it's basically the same thing, why are we not calling it marriage? It's not the same thing. It's not equal. Out of interest, so your straight couple friends who, got, who had a civil partnership mm. um, to express their difference, what was it? That they, how was it they wanted to be different? Or was it about, I suppose marriage for women is historically about subjug- subjugation. and Yes, and I think I, they were actually friends of friends. I don't know them directly, but I think it was that very thing. I think the fact is, is that it was it felt like there was something in that that felt more, um, I don't know, less traditional. Maybe there was about, you know, the the vows, the love, honour and obey that a lot of people have issue with and all of that kind of thing. And I think there was something quite modern about civil partnership that resonated with a lot of straight people as well as gay people. It's quite a loaded ritual, isn't it? Sophia, when you were getting married to a woman, 
Did you confront the idea that historically, traditionally, straight marriage has been about subjugation of the woman, the father giving her away to the new husband? She then takes his name as a sign that she's his property. Everybody else speaks. All the men speak. The woman has no voice. Mm. How did, did you actually combat this understanding or did you not think it was your place being a lesbian? Well, marrying a woman felt quite powerful because it did feel like a bit of a subversion of that tradition. My dad was part of the ceremony. He did walk me down the aisle, which was something that I wanted and that was something that I fantasised about as, as a little girl. Uh, my wife actually took my name. Um, it was very... You know, the people who were in charge of what was going on is was largely the women, which I'm sure is, is the case in, in many heterosexual weddings mm. as well. But it felt powerful to be marrying a woman and to be, you know, thinking about taking each other's names and thinking about being equal and supporting each other. That in itself felt quite radical. Um, my parents are, are married. My mother is a feminist. You know, we, we talked a lot about that kind of thing when I was growing up. And it certainly wasn't something that I was never made to feel as though I should get married. And indeed, it wasn't legal while I was growing up and in some ways my mum said that one of the reasons why she got married was because she wanted to have a child and that's something that we'll potentially get into later on in the programme but mm. that was not a concern for me um, I just wanted to have our love recognised and legitimised and to have our friends together and it's actually given me quite a lot of comfort during lockdown to look back on that day if it had cost twice as much I would have done it again I, I have less than no regrets It's interesting what you say about um, growing up not thinking about wanting you know people often kind of revise history and misremember and say oh I always wanted to get married I always looked forward to a, my wedding day it literally when I was growing up in the 80s it never occurred we didn't even have the same age of consent it never occurred to me that um we were fighting for such mm -hmm. more fundamental things that um it literally never even entered my head that one day I would get married. No, I agree. And another reason that it feels so political. And I think actually the point that you just made is answers your earlier question about how, how do we how do we look after those people that do still see themselves as not wanted of outside of the norm? And I think that's exactly it as 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 queer people to use an umbrella term, I think we have often made our own rules. And so getting married, while it feels like an equal thing and a traditional thing, we do find our own way through that. We write our own vows or we can, you know, there are different things that you don't, we don't have to be forced into, into the traditional norms of what a marriage is. It's the same in, in, in parenting roles. You know, when you're gay parents, you don't fall into those, well, the mum is the one that does all the, you know, nurturing and the looking after and the cooking and the cleaning and the dad is the one that does the practical stuff because you don't have that option. So you fall into your skill sets. I mean, I'm getting off topic, but it, it, it is an interesting thing that even with marriage, something as traditional as that, we can find our own way of doing it. Yeah, I think I totally get that. And um Absolutely get that. My thing is, I, th I think having been for so long single and suddenly when we were getting equal rights and able to assimilate, mm. um, suddenly you started to get this idea of the good gays and the bad gays. And um, the ones like me who were going out and, um, yeah, being a bad gay, getting drunk and getting off with lots of people. And then the nice, respectable ones that um, the straight people could see were just like us. Um, do you know what I mean? I I felt like I was in some ways a bad gay um, for a lot of my life. And um, I don't know, I feel some affinity with those people who may feel that um, marriage isn't something that they can, there's any in 
for them. Mm, I don't know. It's interesting because I was exactly the same kind of gay as you. We were both bad. <laughs> was, but I didn't. But I didn't see myself as a bad gay at all. I've never seen myself in that way at all. And so for me, it didn't feel like it didn't feel like I was doing anything wrong. It felt like I was doing exactly what my straight counterparts were doing. And I and I was totally comfortable with that. So see, I've never I never saw myself that way. I didn't until we were able to behave well and properly. Mm. That's the, that it was only then that I started to become aware of this split. Is there a similar thing in the lesbian community, Sophia? I would have loved to have been a worse gay when I was younger. And I did, you know, com compared to some of the more kind of conservative members of my family, I would still be seen as a bit of an outlier and a rebel by dint of my sexuality alone, if nothing else. But I was a bit of a serial monogamist. I was largely in relationships apart from a period in my late 20s where, you know, it all went to hell, basically. And <laughs> that's one of the reasons why I had the big wedding, just because that period of my life was so embarrassing mm -hmm. that I needed a couple of yards of white lace to get over it. Um, so I did. <laughs> that and a very short period of singledom and I embraced hedonism as, as a young person as, as a lot of people do but I nearly always had a girlfriend and a couple of times I did really feel like okay I am very much living the acceptable you know sad British version of the L word sort of life here and I'm not being controversial enough I'm not being rebellious enough and now I've suddenly woken up and I'm approaching middle age and that's terrifying so mm. it's it's difficult you find even if you're not trying to be respectable, sometimes respectability comes and finds you and it's horrifying. Well, and arguably, um, arguably part of the reason we have got equal rights is because some of us have been respectable and shown that we are just the same as everyone else. Yep. So I want to introduce at this point something that I used to hear a lot when I was growing up and I'm sure you did. Actually, it may have been more directed at men, so Charlie may have something to say about this. Queers can't love. It was all about what we did in the bedroom, the way people understood our identity, who we were. It was what we did in bed or wherever, what we did sexually. And um, what we did emotionally was played down. And actually, <clears throat> although in some ways marriage can seem about conformity, if you view it from that point of view, it's quite radical, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, no, totally. And I think you're right. I think it is something that was aimed more at gay men, because, of course, we all know that lesbians didn't really have sex. I mean, they just lay in bed together, <laughs> covered in flimsy sheets, stroking each Sophia's other. Face. Yeah. And, and that, but, but isn't that isn't that part of it? Is it, it the idea was that, well, it's all right for women because there's not an awful lot to do, but we know what men do together and that's wrong. And, and it always felt like that. And that's why and, and that focus on the fact of us being just that sexual kind of deviance um, meant that yes it was something that I definitely grew up being grew up with being told that I wouldn't fall in love or that my lifestyle would be a certain way but I never bought into that I think I was lucky in that the family that I grew up in my parents my sister and whatever didn't hold to those ideals um, so I never felt that way but it did take me a long time to to fall in love and, and get married and all of that kind of stuff and and yes I suppose maybe it's maybe we got as a community we got to that point of going this is ridiculous you know yeah I mean it's I, I completely agree and if you think of the few representations we saw of our sexual desires on screen or on stage it was about these dangerous urges that needed to be suppressed and could lead to our downfall mm. um Sophia's nodding. 
<laughs> Absolutely. I mean, when I grew up watching The Sally Lloyd Closet was one of my favourite films. I've always been fascinated by depictions of us in the mm. media. And even though I was a young girl when I watched that, a teenage girl, I still, I had, you know, I had the feelings. I knew what I was. So I identified with those male characters as well and largely didn't really see myself because, you know, not everybody's paying to see movies about lesbians. And my version of what you two were just talking about was not so much about what you do in the bedroom. It was the idea that lesbians are damaged and they mm. don't really make love mm. and they've been through traumatic experiences and that's why they are the way they are so you're, <laughs> you're being erased as a sexual and political being because you don't really do anything yeah. or nobody yeah. wants to know about it yeah, yeah that, that's interesting isn't it actually your version of our queers can't love we just can't control ourselves sexually we're sexually incontinent your version was you're all mad chuck them in the lunatic asylum mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're hysterical and even if you look at you look at depictions of gay people until very recently um on film and tv and in the media in general you know for a long time gay men were seen as lonely sad um often pedophiles yeah, usually yeah, yeah. with aids whereas lesbians i mean even even until very recently most lesbians in tv dramas die at some point you know it's they still can a thing. you know it's still a thing and thank god we have people like russell t davis who are changing things um but yeah, so growing up and they're the images that you're seeing, it's it's really difficult to not see yourself represented. Right. So on that subject, um, I like the fact you've bring, brought that up because <laughs> at our wedding, we aren't inviting kids, mm -hmm. um, partly because of numbers. Mm -hmm. um, but to cut a long story short, a friend of my fiance, Harry, her son is in the process of coming out. I said... Do you think we should invite that child? Wouldn't it be amazing for this child to see two men walking down the aisle? Um, and it's, I mean, it's a bit um, difficult because once you start inviting some kids and not the others, people get offended. Mm -hmm. But in principle, what do you think of that point? Or do you think before a child's ready, if they've only just, this child is 14, 15, if they've only just coming to terms with it and talking about it may be a bit much or do you think it's important for them to see well i think it's very difficult when you're talking about a, a child that is in the or a person that is in the process of coming out um, because they're having a very different experience do i think if what you're asking is do i think there's a right time for children to see gay relationships yes there is a right time it's from the minute they're born because that's the reality of life people often say to me with my kids oh when did you tell them when did you talk to them about you know, being gay or we didn't because we don't have to because that's mm. the life that they're living and it's never been an issue. And, and I sort of feel very strongly that it's not something that needs to be delivered at a certain point in their life. It's, it's a fact of life. In which case, talking about our wedding being a political act, is it more political if we get the children there and it is just part of your life, with no their lives with no explanation, as you say, um, that it's that we are we are putting we are being visible as a gay couple getting married and our love being celebrated. We're putting that into their lives. What do you think, Sophia? Is that 
I think it's a positive thing to have children there. I had my little goddaughter who was only very, very, very little and one of my nieces um, at the wedding. And it was wonderful to have the two of them there and they were really the kind of children in, in our lives at, at that time. So I thought it was it was great. And one of the things that I've noticed, especially of the much younger members of my family, one of them when she was about five years old saw a picture of me and my wife, no context, and went, oh, they're in love. And mm-hmm. that was it. You know, how unbothered children are by this, I really can't state it enough. Yeah, and funnily enough, um, when I've spoken to young children in my extended family, and um, my gayness has been kind of theoretical until they've seen me with a partner, and um, we've explained, oh, we're in love, and um, there was one child in particular said, oh, but two men can't get married. And when I said, oh, yes, they can, suddenly it was like, oh, right. Yeah. And actually, in that sense, marriage is quite powerful, isn't it? Mm, Absolutely. Well, don't forget, prejudice is learned behaviour. Children are naturally accepting. And if you tell them something, they take it on board. Oh, right. That's the way two men can get married. I didn't know that. I thought they couldn't. And that's it. They oftentimes become avatars for other people in their lives, their parents, their teachers, outside influences. And that's how they learn prejudice. But they're not. They're not born that way. No. my So my worry inviting this young person to our wedding, it's not about whether they're ready in terms of age. It's more, when I was coming out, I can remember telling the safe female allies first. And I was still a bit frightened of and a bit uncomfortable around other gay people. And... Um, You have to take it slowly, don't you? Well, I don't know what you think about this, Sophia, but we are living in a very different generation Mm. now. And I do have the benefit of having children myself. Now, I know that they're brought up in a slightly different environment because of me and my husband. But kids these days are just much more accepting. And, And I don't think they have the same issues. That's not to say that it's not hard coming out for some people. Of course it is. And it probably always will be because there will always be prejudice. But I do think that we're living in a different world. I think if you want to invite kids to your wedding, you should. If you're not inviting them because you're worried about them coming to a gay wedding, that shouldn't be an issue. But a lot of people Mm. don't have kids at their wedding. That's fine. No, absolutely. Um, Also, weddings, traditionally, you have certain people, family members, you are expected to invite. The courtesy invites, friends of mums and dads, aunties that you don't know that well. And often, what can happen with this from stories I've heard from friends is that people can be invited who may not actually be very approving of what you're doing. And I'm quite hardline. I'm like, if somebody doesn't approve of gay marriage, you don't invite them. I'm Mm. not getting married with somebody who doesn't think we should be doing it. But I know people who have felt pressured into inviting parents, friends from the golf club because the parents are paying for the wedding got to remember these things are quite complicated and um, they've been aware of slight discomfort on the part of these guests at seeing two men snogging in public Mm. or two women. Sophia, did you have anyone who expressed any resistance or disapproval? I can imagine what you told them if they did, but did you have anybody who, who expressed any resistance or disapproval? Yes and no. It was an interesting one because 
As I said, the wedding was quite large and uh, there's a reason for that. And that's because I know that you can't necessarily see me on the radio. But basically, I've got kind of natural goth thing going on physically. And one of the reasons why that is, <laughs> is because I'm from Irish and Italian stock. And these are two groups of people who historically weren't served that well with access to contraception. So I have quite a lot of cousins. You really don't know. I don't know how many cousins I have. I didn't know how many cousins I have until we started planning the wedding. So I was quite surprised by this. And I was, I was surprised that I was expected to invite some people. But the Catholics showed up and I didn't actually think about it any further than that. I was happy that they had. I was quite surprised in the moment of putting them back on the seating plan. But to me, I took it on trust um, that they were happy to be there. And so I didn't drill into it any further than that. It was their choice. And I didn't experience any negativity on the day. I was just happy that they'd made their informed decision and potentially put some of those feelings aside. I mean, yeah, you assume if somebody disapproves, they're, even if they get an invitation, they're not going to come. Yeah. But um, it's terrible that as queer people, we have to think about these things. Straight cis people, when they're getting married, don't. When we were looking around venues, um, mm. I was always attracted to the venues that had images of gay weddings on their, uh, in their brochures, on their websites, whatever. And um, I did think, so the one that we're going with, I did actually ask them, and I'm glad I asked, but um, in some ways I shouldn't have had to ask. I did say, um, if you get in casual labour for the waiters, people clearing away tables, whatever, I said, they need to be vetted. I, I don't want a single person giving me a kind of um, disapproving look at my wedding. They're all, every single person in that room, um, whoever's operating the coat check, whatever, I don't want somebody to start talking about their Christian beliefs, um, be, you know, and this going against them. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Do you, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it, part of me, actually, you can tell I'm getting slightly exercised talking about it. I do think it's terrible that as queer people even have to think about these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and this is why... Another reason why I think it's really important, because I hate the word normalising, but I think we should be trying to make it more usual um, so that people grow up with it just being the way that things are. I went to a gay wedding in a small rural country town and um, after the ceremony in the registry office or whatever it was, the council building, everybody, it was a sunny day, a summer's day, everybody walked through the streets together um, to their venue where they were having the meal and the party. And it was great. Um, the two men were at the front, the two grooms, arm in arm, confetti everywhere, all fantastic. And it was a really wonderful, powerful moment. Um, and actually, that really sums up the political power of it. But it did occur to me, what if you get that one homophobe who just happens to be out shopping, who shouts something out, and that's stuck in there in your memories of your day? Mm. Sophia, did you consider anything like this when you were getting married? I, I did. And one of the things that we were talking about was, yeah, partly the staff. We originally went with the venue we chose because we were crazy about the wedding planner. She got pregnant and left. We ended up with a wedding planner who was a bit sus, actually. And she I don't think she was crazy about it. So that was a concern. I don't think she was really into it. So thankfully, we didn't eventually have to work with her. But apart from that... Did my, you say something about her? Or? There, there, there were other things going on, uh, which I won't get into. But either way, 
she was dodgy on more than one level. I'll, I'll just leave it at that, <laughs> woman. After that, I was most concerned about the registrar, and I did feel quite left out because my parents got to go to marriage classes and take instruction and meet the priest. I was really worried that some rando would show up and be disapproving of us. And we got a lovely woman in the end. And then one guy who I thought, he's never going to crack a smile. But in the end, he did. And we actually have some photos of him smiling. But it would have been nice not to have to worry about that in advance. It just doesn't seem necessary to know that you don't have a relationship with this person and they could really be anyone. It's funny, you know, literally yesterday we got an email saying our wedding planner is leaving the person in charge I say wedding plan it makes it sound quite grand the person in charge of the event at the venue is leaving and um, they'll be in touch shortly to give us the replacement and the first thing that I thought was is it going to be somebody who's happy with gays I mean you assume assume in this day and age in London that it's the venue's responsibility if they're offering same-sex marriage to um, make sure that is the case but we do have to think about these things don't we absolutely all right on that note, I think we are concluding then that I need to get over my worries about conformity, <laughs> respectability. <laughs> Marriage can be and is a powerful political act. I'm going to stop feeling sheepish. <laughs> now, Charlie, just before we start our next debate, I want to say happy Father's Day. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> We've already talked about, you mentioned, and I mentioned in your introduction, your column in The Guardian, mm -hmm about same-sex parenting, which was a big success. Mm. Um, but you stopped doing it, didn't you? I did. I stopped doing it after about a year because I kind of... The reason I did it in the first place... Well, there were a number of reasons, really. I was on Coronation Street at the time and I had a bit of a profile. And when I was growing up, I knew that I wanted to be a dad, but I just didn't know anybody any queer people that were doing it. There was certainly nobody in the, in the public eye. And so when I had a bit of a profile, I thought... I want to be that person. I want to talk about it. I want to show people that apart from a few logistical differences and about how you get pregnant and how you get a kid in the first place, essentially parenting is just as mundane and relentless and ordinary for LGBTQ people as it is for straight people. And I and I wanted to talk about that. Um, and, uh, and I did. And so I went to The Guardian in my arrogance, thinking, well, you can just go to The Guardian and ask for a column and they'll give you one. But they did. Uh, yeah, so it turns out so, not to be arrogant. No, it wasn't arrogant at all. <laughs> uh, and they did. And they gave me a weekly column in The Saturday Guardian. And um, But I realised that once I'd kind of said it all, once I'd talked about it, then I was just, I think The Guardian, even with their lovely, trendy, lefty values, I think they thought that they were going to get something not salacious at all, but something a little bit, oh, this is a bit out there and a bit interesting. And actually, it just isn't. There's nothing when you're when you're changing nappies or doing homework with your daughter or whatever it is, the last thing you're thinking about is who you're attracted to. You're just parenting and trying to do the best job possible. Um, so your sexuality doesn't come into it. And I I stopped writing the column to get to your question, as I will eventually, um, <laughs> because I found that I was writing about potty training and I thought, I don't even want to read about this. Nobody else is going to be interested in the least. And I kind of felt like I'd done it at that point. I'd made my, my point. Well, also, is that not about sameness? That actually changing, um, I nearly said changing a potty, changing a nappy for a child, whether you're um, a gay dad or a straight dad, is the same thing. Yes, and actually, 
what's interesting about that, and I wrote a column about this very subject, <laughs> uh, was that um, you find that n nappy changing tables, I mean, it's slightly different now, but we're going back 10 years. Um, when you're out, they're always in the women's mm. toilets. They're not in mm. the men's toilets. So it's very difficult. The amount of times that I change nappies on the floor of the toilet. Oh. I know. It's disgusting. Or I would say I'm coming into the ladies' yeah. toilets because I need to use the changing table. That kind of stuff. But that's not a gay parenting thing. That's a male parenting thing. Um, and a lot of those things were very interesting yeah. to me. Yeah. But um, but yeah, essentially I, I, I felt like I'd done it I, I i've thought about revisiting it just because i'm at a very different stage and my kids are approaching teenage years now and i'm i'm wondering about that and i wonder if there's something more to say and yeah. also 10 years later the world's changed yeah the world has changed but also your children you know when they get to this age that's when they start becoming more aware of things like gender and their own sexuality isn't mm -hmm. it so i suppose mm -hmm. you could argue there's more to explore yeah, for sure. And 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 maybe it's something that Cameron and I have talked about and I I'm, I may well revisit it at some point, I don't know. And how about work? Because as you <laughs> said, the the reason that you got chance to do this column was because of your profile on TV in the theater. Um obviously the theater ground to a halt yeah. during covid. Well, this has been the difficulty really. I mean, I'm due to do a play uh, which I think we start rehearsals in October now. It's been postponed four times. Uh, so that's been a real drag. Um I'm I'm doing some filming next week for a film. Uh that's all starting to happen again. TV is starting to fire up again. Um but yeah, I mean it's been it's been a tough year thank god for voiceovers <laughs> do you at least feel hopeful i mean you've got this big job in a, a play do you at least feel like it's cranking up again and it's going to recover i do yes and i and, and i think you know there's definitely stuff out there it's been tricky and people have had to rethink the way that they make content and you know it's very difficult with social distancing and all that kind of thing and theaters are starting to have to work out i mean hopefully theaters and the theatre industry is going to save itself because it's under real pressure at the moment but um, but yeah things are starting slowly but they're, they're starting. And are you able to tell us um, what your play is called or is it all still top secret? Uh, it's going to be? It's called Straight White Men uh, and it was a new play and um, it was off Broadway a few years ago and it had a very starry cast I think Army Hammer was in it and a bunch of people and it is about straight white men it's not that's not an ironic title um how radical then that a straight gay man but that's the, the straight gay man the straight gay man a gay white man is playing a straight white man um but it's but it's interesting because the the the, the subject because obviously you on face value you'd think oh yeah straight white men we never hear their stories but actually it's very interesting because it is about a crisis in straight white male masculinity at the moment and I think there is a real problem there and it's kind of about that um, how how straight men are dealing with that stuff okay hold that thought because we're going to come back to that when we talk about football The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain Virgin Radio Pride my brilliant panel are sitting in front of me and giggling. That's Charlie Condu and Sophia Blackwell. They're still here. And now we're going to be talking about football. So when I was growing up and being bullied for being gay, um, it always felt like 
It was at the, its most extreme when sport was involved, and in particular, football. Liking football was a sign of being a man, and my dislike of it, my inability to play it, was often held up as a sign that I was somehow failing at being a man or a boy at the time. And I know I've got a lot of gay friends who've said they feel the same, but not all queer people do. And I also know that for lesbians, football can have much more positive, inclusive associations. It can be a refuge. I'm talking now to Ryan Atkin, who is a professional football referee, let me get this right, officiating in the EFL Championship, League One and Two, and National League. He's also a Stonewall Sports Champion and a prominent equality campaigner. And he's an out gay man, the only out gay man in professional football. Ryan, how can this be possible that you're the only out gay man in professional football? Hey, Matt. How are you, buddy? I'm fine, thank you. Good to have you here. How come you're the thank only you. one? What's going on? Uh, I don't know. Um, times are changing and there are more and more people identifying as LGBTQ plus in football. Um, sadly, not in the professional game, but certainly more at the amateur level, which you would think would be a lot harder for people to do because there's less control. But we are seeing greater numbers of leagues being set up that are LGBTQ plus inclusive. Um, and we are seeing more and more individuals who are playing uh, competitive sport uh, in the semi-pro level um, coming out and a uh, player such as Matt Morton, who recently came out, who's a player manager, um, you know, who gave a great positive story of his coming out uh, recently. And it's so, in, it's so empowering for other queer people to see the positive stories of being open and being true to yourself um, and what that can do for, for, for you. All right, then. I know this is going to be a difficult question for you to answer, but are the football bodies, the industry, the professional bodies, are they doing enough? You can tell I know nothing about football. The FA, <laughs> are they doing enough to encourage LGBTQ plus participation and to make people like us feel welcome? I think um, if it was a circus, they would be walking the tightrope. I think they're afraid of falling off that very thin line. And I think... Um, Whereas we've seen racism tackled head on um, and some very bold statements and some very bold gestures and, and the work being done around LGBT, uh, sorry, around racism, the work being done around um, inclusivity for LGBTQ plus is very, very difficult because I think they see uh, a player coming out as the holy grail, but actually football is so much bigger than just players. You know, you've, you've got spectators, you've got those who work in, in the sort of back offices as a whole uh industry there that really needs to be more open um and it, it needs to be more equal for everyone and if it's not welcoming of lgbtq plus then how do you expect individuals to identify as that okay um before i bring in our panel can i just ask you i shared my feelings about football growing up it felt like it was the ultimate expression of toxic masculinity well not just that but it felt like an arena in which toxic masculinity could flourish and was encouraged, presumably your experience was different. Um, yes, in some ways, I, I suppose I, I hid my sexuality and I put it at the back of my mind. And, you know, I tried to be one of the lads, you know, at, at school, all the cool lads played football, you know, they were the idols of all the women, you know, they had special ties. It was very much, you know, if you played for the for the football club or the rugby club at school, you know, you were one of the in boys. 
Um, and so during my secondary school years, um, I hid my sexuality. I grew up in a town called Plymouth, um, not very inclusive. Um, and it was only really when I moved to London that I was able to explore my sexuality um, and bring that other aspect of my life. And that's sometimes been the battle where you sort of straddle both camps. You straddle what is considered that toxic masculinity in that um, area of heterosexual world. And then at the same time, you've got your other life of, uh, of being a queer man or a gay man. And, you know, what we are trying to do in society is trying to raise that masculinity or that mask for mask uh, atmosphere and actually just merge the two as one. But interestingly, what you, you didn't say, it wasn't about toxic masculinity for me. What you said was, I recognised this and thought that was a way of me fitting in and using it as a tool to prove that I was a man. Yeah, we, we you know, we, we've talked previously about what it is considered to be a camp man or somebody that is butch or mask or mask or whatever pigeonholes people want to put us in and how we adapt ourselves to hide things or to uh, overcompensate. And I think for football, for me, that was something that I, I sort of challenged within my own self. Um, and, it, you know, it got me to where I am today. OK, I'm going to ask Charlie now, why do you think... A simple game, a sport, is loaded with so many extreme kind of emotions and associations for gay men in particular. Gosh, I don't know. That's a really big question, isn't it? I think. <laughs> well, I think for all the reasons that you said, I mean, it's it, it's the image of football, and it it does seem to epitomise masculinity, and and it was certainly when we were growing up, I had the same experience of you. It felt like it was something that wasn't for us. It was for the straight boys. Um, and, and I was not very good at it. And I it made me feel very nervous whenever we had to play football. I hated it. And yet my husband was captain of the football team. He loved it. He was brilliant at it. He was their star player. So his experience in Canada was very different. And uh, I'm talking soccer, not American yeah, football yeah. as it was over there. Um, so he he really embraced it and he re was really was really into it. So I, I suppose I can only speak for myself. I found it very difficult. And interestingly, now the father of two kids, but particularly my little boy, was really into football for a while. So he was part of a football club at the weekends. So I ended up being one of those parents that stood on the sidelines. I thought, God, I thought I'd escaped football, left it behind in my school years. And here I am every Saturday morning getting up and standing in the rain and cheering on. Well, it's, it's what's very interesting, before I ask Sophia about your ideas and your associations and how it's viewed amongst the lesbian community, actually talking about not being able to escape our associations, I want to read out some comments we've had from listeners on Twitter. Actually, all of these are from gay men, I should point out. Um, hated football, still do. Come from a football-loving family. My nan once said, you'll never be a real man if you don't like football. Um, somebody else said, I've never liked football, what it stands for and the actual game. I remember at school, even though I was a top athlete and ran 400 metres for England, some boys would stand outside my classroom and chant queer, queer at me because I wasn't a football fan. Shocking and still scars me. 
Finally, another says, I almost die of fright if I pass where people are playing football and they ask me to kick the ball back to them. I pretend I didn't hear and just keep walking. I'm totally um, in touch with that emotion. Actually, it sounds like, Charlie, you standing on the sidelines of a football pitch cheering on your son feel similar frissons of fear. Um, fear, no, is that the right not, word? Sorry. Not really. Um, I mean, I suppose maybe I was reluctant at first, but but I realised it wasn't really about me. It was about him. And so I was there to support him. And he was really good at football. He is really good at football. So that was great. I was there to support him. But um, yeah, there were those moments where, you know, at the end they'd have the, the dad's match and we'd all play. And, you know, I'm just not very good. So I'd just pretend I'd run around a bit and hope the ball didn't come near me. because you know That's where the acting comes that's in. That's where the acting comes in. <laughs> right, Sophia, we've hinted when I was talking to Ryan, I'm going to ask him some more about this. But um, for the lesbian community, sports, football can be an inclusive world. It can be um, a refuge. We've got lots of out lesbian players. The former England captain, Casey Stoney, for one. Um, what are your feelings about football as a lesbian? I think anything that brings people together is a good thing. And especially after the 18 months that we've had, if what's going on at the moment with the tournaments brings people together, then that can only be a good thing. And I have seen quite a few of my friends who are big football fans, who feel very strongly about the clubs that they've supported since they were little, uh, regardless also of, of what some of those clubs are. And I also know a lot of straight women, actually, let's not forget them, who are big football fans and whose memories of football such as going to the match with their dads, for example, are just as precious to them as they would be to a little boy. So there is that. But yeah, when it comes to you're walking through a park and somebody kicks a ball in your direction, I'm also the person running away because I was a terrible klutz at school. I haven't got much better since then. Football was not offered to me as an option. So I don't even know how my friends got into playing it. That's always an, an interesting question. You know, netball, hockey rounders. Yeah, but football was, was not mm. actually on the cards. So thinking about it, actually, Ryan, how much of this is about... I'm thinking when I was at school, um, yes, it did tip over into gay and queer, but it was often about my effeminacy and not being a good enough boy when I was playing football. And we're talking about lesbian women feeling included and, um, you know, some of them loving it. Is this in your... Do you think, Ryan, it's more about gender than... Um, Oh, actually, maybe that's too simple because you've got plenty of straight women football fans. What's going on? What's going on here? Can you unpick it for us? No, I think I think I've, I think there is an element around gender. I don't think that, and, and I, I cannot speak um, for people that identify um, as female, um, but I don't think there is that competition as such when it comes to feminism. Whereas when with masculinity, it is all about beating the chest, and and some individuals seeing that. You know, height and muscles is that alpha dominant man. And actually, that for me, that's definitely not the case. And if you look at football, certainly there's huge aspects of football that is not considered to be masculine. It probably actually dips into the into the LGBTQ plus uh, range. So but so is what you're saying that um, it, the reason the reason part of the reason behind this is because our traditional understanding of masculinity and all the stereotypes competition is a part of it when we look at femininity um actually that isn't a stereotype of women that they're alphas in competition with each other 
I yeah, I don't I don't personally see that. And I never saw that at school between groups of girls that I used to hang around with. Um, you know, you get the usual young in you know, young uh people fighting in things, but there was never that competition. However, in my group of lads friends, there was always a dominant struggle. There was always somebody trying to be better than someone else. And if you weren't playing for the football club, you were playing for the rugby team. Um, and I just never saw that um, in my sort of female group of friends at secondary school. And I think you, that can be embodied when you look at things like the Women's Super League um, and you look at the Women's World Cup and just the complete and utter diversity that that had. And nobody was talking about an openly out lesbian or bi player. It just wasn't talked about. And that's that's really odd because actually, a majority, you know, there are a good high percentage of players who identify as bi or lesbian. So it's not you... talked about. So do you think men's football can learn some lessons? So you said there's this holy grail of finding a male um, professional player who will come out, a Premier League player. Actually, do you think what men's football should do is take learn some lessons from women's football? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think, um, I think it's the whole way the approach is taken. I think it's the attitude. I think football has allowed to grow um, in a towards a negative uh, in a negative direction. We've seen recent. Uh, recent incidents in football where we where we had people trying to break away the Super League and it was all about money. It was never about the love of the game. It was never about bringing people together. It was about money. It's a business. Um, and actually, if you look at things like women's football or if you look at rugby as a prime example, you know, there's caps on players, what they what they earn. And there is a greater respect both for players and match officials, but also the fact that fans can sit together in a stadium. You just wouldn't get that in football. Sophia, what's your experience of gender conditioning through the sports that you experienced when you were a child? And how do you think this intersects with your sexuality as a lesbian? That's quite, I have to say, that is quite a difficult question. <laughs> just throw some thoughts at me. Are you sure, absolutely. I think... I would like to see PE taught a bit more differently because I was at school and I had really no idea what on earth was going on in physical education classes. And it was one of those things, you know, we were talking about marriage earlier and thinking about how you can mix things up when you're in a relationship which has two people of the same gender and gender identity potentially in it. And you can actually play to your strengths. My strengths were, were never really served by things like football or rounders or netball because I was terrible. I was quite a high achieving kid. A lot of us gay kids were. Mm. And my PE teacher, I remember her once saying to my mother, well, Mrs. Blackweller, she can't be good at everything. Uh, and that was her <laughs> verdict on, on my sporting prowess. Um, and I have a lot of stamina and I now, I wouldn't go so far as to say I like exercise, but I've realised that I have to do a lot of it in order to keep eating at the level that I enjoy. And so I wish that things were a bit more imaginative, that there was more dance, more sort of music and movement. One of the things that I really like seeing is sometimes when you're at a festival and you just see little kids spontaneously dancing around. I mean, understandably, music and movement was my favourite as a child because I was just really terrible at games and would still be terrible at games if you put me in that situation. I think how it intersects with the body and the idea of the body is that lesbians are often quite encouraged to fancy girls with muscles or who are quite sort of ripped looking or androgynous. That isn't how I look and I did feel because of that growing up that the whole thing didn't really fit me and I would be better served by, you know, hanging around at the other end of the field eating pick and mix and waiting for it all to be over. <laughs> right, so Charlie, you've mm. talked about being on the field as a parent, your son playing football. In general... 
Um, I've noticed the children in my family responding to gender conditioning prompts to behave a certain way as a boy or a girl, and that wins approval from certain older people. What do you do as a dad to guard against this? Do you have any kind of policies or any tips? Well, yeah, kind of. And you you try to be as kind of... all-encompassing as you can be and also I'm a school governor as well so I'm very involved in in the school that I work with around this stuff too but you also have to remember that you're dealing with individuals so much as I would love my daughter to really be into football and my son to be into dance they just are what they are and they're not particularly having said that I do think that the first thing that that schools have to remember and that we have to remember is that they're games it's meant to be play it's meant to be fun team sports are great for a number of reasons but essentially it's about getting kids to exercise in a really fun and positive way and I think there are so many ways in which we differentiate I mean certainly one thing at my school is that we're trying to stop the boys against girls sort of thing but also just things that are changing so much from when we were kids. You know, I was always told that I ran like a girl. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that was a real insult. Through a ball, through a, a ball like, like a, a girl. girl. The ultimate insult, doing something like, like a, a girl. girl. Exactly. And this is something that people have cottoned onto now and realised is completely wrong. Of course it is. Some of the best runners I know are girls. And, you know, it, it, it's sort of ridiculous when you think about it. Um and so changing those kind of attitudes and stereotypes are really important. And I think making kids, and certainly at a primary level, there's no difference physically, uh, you know, in terms of strength or speed or agility between boys and girls at that age. There just isn't. So why separate them because mm. of their gender? Mm. Get them all playing together. It's interesting <clears throat> you mentioned that it's supposed to be about fun, it's supposed to be about games. Ryan, you said earlier, you know, you were talking about the industry of football, the money, we can lose sight of this, the passion for the game, which is still very much alive in women's football. Can I pick up on something you, you another thing you said, which was you mentioned rugby. And um, to some people, rugby is an even more intensely masculine game than football, but we don't have the same associations. And certainly the professional game, there have been players like Gareth Thomas, I know he came out towards the end of his professional career, but players like Gareth (laughs) Thomas, the referee Nigel Owens, um, a lot of um, gay men don't have the same fears and negative emotional associations. Can you, do you have a take on what might be the difference here? Uh, It's actually, it's interesting you say that because I was just trying to think back to school and actually the, the, the lads who played rugby always came across as more open and diverse and, and more friendly, actually. And I don't know whether that's because there is, um, you know, there's that sort of tradition within the game of this is how it's played. You know, rugby teams after, after a, you know, after a, a game will all sort of meet up and they'll have dinner. It's a more formal event. Um, and therefore there's etiquette that goes with rugby. And I don't know whether those values and those behaviours are then entrusted or instilled in younger people when they're playing sport, because I think there is a key difference there between between the two. It was interesting what uh, Sophia said around um, sport being more imaginative, because everybody was forced to play football, everybody was forced to play rugby, and you never got a choice. And so I think a lot of people who are trying to um, go through their journey of their sexuality, um, being forced to do something and the fear has put a lot of people off sport and now 
Um, I see a lot of people who are who identify as LGBTQ plus because they're seeing other people who identify as gay or lesbian or bi in the sport just dipping their toe in just to see actually can they get rid of that fear that they had as a young person. And I hope that with the education that's now happening in schools, we are seeing um, a, a huge decrease in individuals who identify as LGBTQ plus coming into sport and enjoying it. Very interesting. Also, um, you mentioned, you were talking about rugby, we were talking about the etiquette around it. I'd love to know what Charlie and Sophia think. How does this intersect with social class? Because if we look at rugby, it's a traditionally more middle class game. Football is was always for the working classes. Do you think the fact that football supporters <coughs> can sometimes erupt in violence, hooliganism, we saw it in Portugal for the Champions League final, Man City and Chelsea supporters. Um, is that about um, male rage? Is it about the working classes feeling that they are losing their voice, their position? What do you think is going on here? Um, Charlie's looking at Sophia. He wants Sophia to speak on this one. Do you think, <laughs> what's, has social class got anything to do with it? I wouldn't go so far as to say that social class definitely has something to do with it. And as somebody who doesn't really attend football matches, it's hard for me to say kind of what that barometer looks like. One of the things that I have heard recently from a friend of mine who is a black guy and he lives in Berlin and he was talking about I would have gone on this football trip a couple of years ago, but now I'm not so sure I would. I think sometimes sports can be a bit of a barometer of the world around us. So if there's rage and if people feel as though they're not being heard or if people feel as though they have carte blanche to be awful to another sector of society then it might erupt in a situation like this but I think in some ways those are about larger issues and certainly more than about what class a person belongs to I think that you know some upper class people I've met uh yeah terrible people and some you know working class people are wonderful and it's, it's it's really difficult to say oh can i just say i absolutely wasn't suggesting that um working class people are not nice people mm. it was more about the level of oppression and frustration with the role in society and the opportunities they get do you know what i mean it was more about um i'm trying to work out and i'm trying to unpick the link between this toxic masculinity we've all um, accepted is there in football and how it sometimes erupts into violence and how it sometimes erupts into racism and homophobia. You know, one shouldn't necessarily follow from the other, should it? No, it shouldn't, but I, I agree. I don't think that's necessarily a class thing. I think it's a culture thing. Um, and I think it's just traditionally that's the way it, it, it's been. And I think... A lot of the time you lead from the top in these things. And rugby, I agree with what Ryan said, it's always sort of felt like a more accepting environment. And I don't know why that is. I don't know enough about the sport or about football. But I do think it feels like a cultural thing. Right, can I ask our panellists, because obviously we don't usually go and watch professional football games. I'm assuming that isn't the kind of thing we do. But it certainly isn't in my case. But I have been sitting on public transport when a load of football lads get on after a game, all beard up, the aggression is fizzling in the air and you feel uncomfortable and you have to get out and leave. I have felt this on numerous occasions. Has either of you two, have either of you two ever experienced this? Yes, certainly. I mean, I've I've had that many a time. And, and when I was on Coronation Street and I was going up to Manchester from Euston on the train a lot, I'd often go at the weekends when there were groups of groups of 
football fans on the train and there were many times where I spent most of the journey sitting in the toilet. Now, that was partly because when you're recognisable in that environment with a big group of people, whoever they are, but certainly with a lot of drunk, straight men when you're playing a queer character on television, it can invite a certain kind of attention that you just... Sometimes they could be lovely, but equally it could turn very yeah. quickly. So I would take myself out of that environment. So, yeah, for sure. OK, right, we need to wrap up. Ryan, thank you very much for joining us. Is there, are there any parting shots you'd like to make? Or are you happy with where the discussion's gone? No, I think the discussion's gone well. I just think uh, anybody listening should give sport a try. And if, if it's something that they weren't comfortable doing when they were younger, there are so many clubs across mm. all the sectors of sport that are LGBTQ plus inclusive and it's just go along and have a go and you never know it may allay some of those fears or some of the fears that you've got inside you about sport. Can I just say, I knew you'd want to say something like that, which is why I gave you the chance. Thank you very much. So just to summarise, football is for everyone. Sport is for everyone or should be for everyone. We can enjoy it too. We think the football industry needs to do a bit more to invite us in. But um, And for those of us who've had football we weaponized against us, as children, it can take a long time for the scars to heal. But it's for everyone. Certainly in my case, the scars are healing. <laughs> You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. And now we're going to have a little chat with Sophia Blackwell. Can you tell us, now that we're um, gradually emerging from lockdown, very gradually, um, how have you found the experience as a creative well, I think it was really a game of two halves, going on back to the kind of football analogy. The first part was really, really weird because every creative in the UK will know it was just really three weeks of stuff getting cancelled and that was just relentless um, after a while. Nobody knew, knew what they were doing. Every day was a series of disappointments. But there was a sort of strange atmosphere when we felt as though, you know, we're all in it together and some people actually potentially enjoyed the break a little bit or felt as though they were able to recharge, particularly introverts, which a lot of creative people are. The trouble is, no matter how introverted you are, nobody necessarily has to be locked in their house for a, a long period of time. And I think anybody who suffers from mental health difficulties or had health anxiety to begin with, taxing times, definitely. For me, I was lucky. Um, my wife and I enjoyed spending time in each other's company. And one thing I didn't miss was the feeling of FOMO, you know, when you look online yeah, and you see yeah. everybody, you know, going to glamorous parties or having all this success. For a while, we were all in the same boat and yeah. now things have become a bit more atomized again. So that's probably the only thing I miss. But it's interesting when you think about what you want and how you identify yourself and what your life goals are. Because if you say, well, for example, I don't have kids, but I go to the theatre and I travel all the time. Suddenly you don't go to the theatre and travel all the time. You're just stuck in your house waiting for the next series of Strictly to start like everybody else and there were some things about that that were democratizing and potentially quite liberating but generally it's no way to live really i completely agree um people who have constructed for themselves um full lives in non-conventional ways rather than the um having getting married and having kids you know to go back to our previous discussion um it felt like those people particularly the single ones who maybe go to lots of art galleries the theater they had everything that you know that they enjoyed in life taken away from them 
Absolutely. And when you're gay, you tend to move to a big city and then you lose out on the things that the big city has to offer. I enjoyed exploring my neighbourhood and getting to know things locally, which a lot of people did. And I found a lot of solace in that, as a lot of people did. I would like it if we could nurture our local little villages and parts of London and the woodlands and the places that supported us when we were at our most extreme and in our hour of need. But the city isn't really structured like that. It's all about go back and support Pratt and pay somebody else's mortgage. Well, and the whole country, not just the city. There's Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on. Um, what about creatively? Was it a fulfilling time for you? Was it a productive time for you? Well, I've made 50 hours of radio in my kitchen. So I've just broadcast my 50th hour of homemade radio last week or potentially earlier this week. I lose track because I also did a couple of standalones. And when I've been working on the radio show out in South London for Resonance FM from my kitchen, there were some days when I got to speak to queer people from all around the world. So I would speak to somebody in America, then Brazil, then South Africa in a matter of days, sometimes within the same day. And I've also spoken to people who just really inspired me with their resilience and grit and tenacity. Um, I did a one-off episode with Peter Tatchell recently, having watched the documentary about him. And that was really eye-opening. That definitely made me stop feeling sorry for myself about the situation that we find ourselves in. Because it's one thing to acknowledge things aren't going particularly well and I'm distressed about it. But when you see somebody like that, you do think, yeah, I, I, I could I could step it up a bit. And um, what about, so we've talked about the radio, what about the poetry? Your latest collection, The Other Woman, um, can you tell us about this? What can our listeners expect if they aren't familiar with your work? Well, I write a lot of poems about love, about family, about domesticity, about food, one of my favourite things. Mm. And the book is one of the potential titles that I was considering for it that I didn't end up going with in the end was The Country of Marriage because it was written around the time of the, what well, some of the poems were written around the time of the referendum and I got to thinking about what is it to be a British person in a country where, you know, a lot of my ancestors are not British and when I'm marrying an Afro-Caribbean woman and what are the journeys that have taken us here, which the first poem in the collection addresses directly what did it take to bring my wife's mother to this country and what did it take to bring my relatives over to this country as well what does it mean to adopt the conventions of marriage which we've been talking about when yeah. you are used to being part of the counterculture and you are used to not being one of the accepted and one of the in crowd we have seen such seismic change Matt in our lifetimes sometimes I think we struggle to process it all Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And we're, you know, just unpicking some of it here is, um, there's so much. It feels like we've only just scratched the surface. Absolutely. But before we go on, so this is your most recent poetry collection, The Other Woman. That's the correct title. That is absolutely the correct title. The Sunday Roast with Matt Kane. Virgin Radio Pride. My brilliant panel, Charlie Condu and Sophia Blackwell, are still here. And we're now going to be talking about passing privilege. In case nobody has guessed, when I was growing up, I didn't pass for straight, still don't. But this did mean I had a really hard time when I was at school. And then after I'd come out, I had to deal with lots of femme shaming, exclusion from within our own community. <coughs> I always thought that those people who had passing privilege had it much easier. 
But I've started to realise that being straight by sight has its own challenges. We are joined by Sam Marshall, who's a beautician with her own salon, The Beauty Guru, in Media City, Salford. She's also a respected voice in the industry, a well-known beauty educator and broadcaster, and her glamorous image often leads people to the assumption that she's straight, meaning she has to come out to every new customer. Sam, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. First of all, how do you identify and what's it like having to come out to all these customers over and over again? Yeah, so I identify as a gay woman, as a lesbian. Um, and yeah, it's constant really. It's not so much nowadays because people do use the word partner, but definitely in the 2000s, it was constant. Have you got a boyfriend? Have you got a husband? And when you're sitting, chatting away to people and you're doing a treatment, you know, just kind of making nice chat or whatever, and this comes up, do you can't, do you ever get negative reactions and do you have to brace yourself for potential negative reactions? So I don't nowadays, because my clientele, um, I'm in an area called Media City, so all my clients are quite similar. Um, but when I was in the city centre, I worked in Harvey Nichols, the department store, and we had a really vast array of clients. And definitely there... I had some people who were like, oh, uh, uh, oh, I mean, well, that's fine. I mean, I, I'm okay with that. You know, it was that kind of reaction. Um, I did have one male client that I can remember, and he um, he actually commented on how he didn't get trans clients. I didn't tell him at the time I teach trans awareness training. And it took a few visits, and I waxed him very slowly. Um, <laughs> it took a few visits for me to actually say, no, I have a girlfriend, and his face was a picture. So... Presumably for you, this must be quite anxiety-making when you're in the position of having a so-called privilege passing for straight, but you're having to do this all the time and kind of preempt reactions. Yeah, well, funnily enough, until this, this subject was mentioned to me, I'd never really thought about it that much. I kind of just accepted that this is what I do on a day, well, not a daily basis, but, you know, every few days it'll come up and I'll talk about it. Um, so it's probably never really occurred to me until now, but now I am kind of like, oh, hang on a minute, I do have to do that all the time. I kind of took it as a given. And can you understand, as somebody with this so-called in inverted commas passing privilege, we're discussing whether or not it is a privilege, why some people who have it, when they encounter signs of a hostile world, they retreat into the closet or stay in the closet. And actually, you could then argue, is it a privilege if, you know, you're you're pushed into that position yeah I think for me I wouldn't ever go back into the closet um I think even on a professional level I'm very out I'm very vocal within the industry industry but I've turned it to my advantage because I actually teach things associated with the LGBTQIA community so I teach about HIV awareness I teach about trans awareness so I've kind of I've kind of owned it as it were I don't think I'd ever go back in the closet and I'm I'm quite if people don't like who I am or they don't, because I do a lot of female intimate waxing. That's kind of a thing that I've, I've been known for my whole career. And not once has, has anyone turned around and said, actually, no, you know, I'm not comfortable being around you, which has been great. So I have had quite positive responses from people generally. Sophia, you're also a lesbian and also very femme. Do you think this made things easier for you when you were growing up? And what about... Now, as an adult, 
Look, when I was growing up, I felt under a bit more pressure to try and look a little more butch or boyish or androgynous, but it just didn't come naturally to me at all. I had lovely girlfriends who, you know, looking back, very much fit into that brief, but to me, uh, no. So my kind of earliest memories of being out on the scene involved being asked in clubs, you know, especially getting in and trying to get into the club. Was I a lesbian or not necessarily being trusted by the people who were in there because I had long hair? Uh, I did didn't actually have any kind of bisexuality or pansexuality going on until much later in my life, until I was about 28. I was a complete gold star, as they say in the business. But nonetheless, mm. this did not count on the door of the clubs that I was trying to get into when I was seen as being not quite gay enough. And that was quite painful. And I've never really wanted to pass um, just you and I have spoken about this before, Matt, and what you see with me, that you know, there is no dysphoria. I don't know what that feels like. What people see when they look at me is also what's on the inside. Uh, well, just sometimes I wish it was a bit different. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because people can often assume there's some kind of um, trying to be a certain way. Actually, the fact that I have no passing privilege, um, that's just how I am. I'm mm. literally not trying to be one or the other. Um you know, but actually, when I said, uh, when I was asking whether it made it easier, I wasn't actually thinking about when you were first visiting lesbian bars. I was thinking about at school. Presumably, you weren't targeted as uh, tomboy. You weren't teased for being a lesbian. No, that's true. I was weird and arty, but that was really not picked up on because I wore red lipstick with glitter flecks in it to school. And I was really, you know, I was the girl who was always getting told to pull her skirt down and that kind of thing. It was really not something that people picked up much about me. So it was something I could disappear into that pretense, but those weren't very kind of happy memories for me. So I'm not in a hurry to have them carry into my adult life. I want people to know who I am. There's lots of unhappy memories around these discussions. Charlie, mm. you're an actor, yes. an actor who's played several straight roles. Mm -hmm. You're going to play a straight role again in mm -hmm. the very near future, as you've just told us. What do you make of the term straight acting? Can we, I know that it's, it's better in most contexts to talk about straight presenting, but can we actually learn to act straight in real life as well as on a stage or in front of a camera? Yeah, I think we can. And I think a lot of gay people uh, are very adept at that. I mean, I, I am I, I have been accused of being straight acting myself for many years because I'm not particularly camp. Um, and but as a child, I was certainly um, quite effeminate. I mean, I was into dancing. I was into playing with dolls and my friends were girls. Um, something clearly happened as I got older and I must have realized on some level that that wasn't acceptable. Um, and so I would, I would say that, yes, I probably changed who I was. And if the, if the world had been more accepting, who knows what kind of a guy I would be today. Having said that, I'm very comfortable with who I am now and I'm very comfortable with my sexuality. I always have been, and I came out very easily. Um, and I don't feel that I am, pretending to be something that I'm not I don't feel like um, in fact in the times in my career where I've had to play camp it doesn't come naturally to me in that way I find it I find it quite difficult sometimes um, and so I I used to get quite cross when people would accuse me of being straight acting and saying oh you're just pretending or you're trying to fit in or whatever because this is genuinely how I am um, 
But I do think that people can become very good at recognizing from an early age that it is easier if you can pass. And so and people do change who they are. So interestingly, on that subject, before I come back to Sam, we've had an email from a listener, Gareth in London, who says exactly what Charlie's talking about. He says, I can't remember when, but there must have been a moment when I decided to teach myself how to behave like a man. I started observing minute <coughs> gestural, postural, vocal patterns in men's behaviour. He'd practised this behaviour and after years of this, it became like second nature. He avoided um, homophobic bullying and abuse, but he says he he says when he hears um, passing privilege, he thinks it's a peculiar phrase because it doesn't feel much like a privilege mm. to have been monitoring and adapting my behaviour throughout my childhood. And I do wonder what kind of privilege it is when I'm accepted not for who I am, but for what I have learnt to be. Now get this, he says, in truth, I don't really know what my natural behaviour is anymore <coughs> because it has become lost and confused beneath the layers of affectation. Mm. Mm. What do you make of that, Charlie? Well, that's interesting. It's not my experience because I, I, I'm reading a book actually at the moment Shuggy Bane um, I don't know if you've read it love it fantastic book but there's a there's a, a, a scene if you like in the book where the the young boy the young gay boy is trying to learn how to to walk like the other boys because he, and he can't do it and he says it seems to come so naturally to them that wasn't my experience I don't ever remember thinking oh I have to change the way that I walk I just walk the way that I am so for me it didn't feel like I need to do something different with my physicality or my voice or my hands or, you know, whatever it is. That that stuff didn't uh, apply to me. Um, it was more that I think I realised that the things that I was interested in weren't OK. Um, and so I put that stuff to one side, I think. But it's very difficult to know because I was so young. And it's it, 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 it it's such a kind of nuanced thing, isn't it? And we become very, very good at uh, adapting to the world that we're in. So in response to that, I, I, I feel like I know who I am and what my natural way of being in the world is. Having said that, as I said before, if the world had received me in a positive way when I was a kid, maybe I would be very different now. Who knows? Okay, Sam, um, so I want to read to you um, a comment from another listener, Gerald from Bolton. He says, I've always found that when people say, I could never have guessed you're gay, they see it as a compliment, mm. which is odd when what they are saying is actually that they think it is better that way without realising it. What do you think <laughs> of this, Sam? Do people say to you, I'd never have guessed you were a lesbian as if it's a good thing? Yeah, they, they do. They think they're paying me a compliment and they say, oh, oh, but you're so pretty and you wear girly clothes. I'm like, why? Well, what does a lesbian look like? So they have to wear like lumberjack shirts and big heavy shoes. You know, it's ridiculous. But yeah, I get that. I get that so much. And people are really, really shocked. But then they're kind of like, oh, um, oh I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, di I just didn't realise. I didn't know. And they kind of go around this down this apologetic route with me. So, yeah. We're discussing passing privilege, and I'd like now to bring the discussion onto the idea of straight presenting potential partners. In the gay male world, they are considered the ultimate, and there's a whole kind of fetishization of them. Sophia is nodding. Four lesbians are femme, are femme lesbians considered generally? to be more attractive? 
I don't know. I think I remember the noughties and the, you know, 2010s period quite well. And during that time, the most desirable thing to be was to look like Shane from The L Word or that sort of Alex Parks look where you're a bit androgynous, mm. you don't really have many curves, you're rocking that slightly edgier look. And I just can't pull that off. I'm not built for it. I, I never have been. So to me, that had already always seemed like the epitome of what a desirable lesbian looks like that's partly because the heroines that we grow up with and identify with are also somewhat tomboyish and you can identify with that independence of spirit I suppose but you might look at yourself in the mirror and think well I don't actually look like this because I'm curvier or maybe I'm overweight or I my skin doesn't look like this my hair doesn't look like this it certainly you know wouldn't look great if I cut it in that particular style so to me that's always seemed like that would be what the the ultimate desirable lesbian looks like but then it's fashion just like everything else isn't it things have changed a great deal even since then absolutely I can see Sam nodding but I just want to quickly ask Charlie so let's be honest in the gay male world the idea of a real man Mm. somebody that you in inverted commas I'm just um, stressing that somebody you can't tell is gay is generally considered hot yeah. What's I mean, what's going on there? What does that reveal about the person who is being attracted? I think it comes down to I mean, it's listen, it's a generalization and how do we know why other people find find people attractive? It's 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 hard to say and it's very personal and subjective, but I think a lot of the time it's down to self-loathing. I I I genuinely do. I think a lot of people think they project an image onto somebody else and and the idea is that these men who are not camp are somehow more masculine more male more of a man uh and I, and i think it comes down to that really um i don't i don't know i i don't know what it was that people found attractive about me i think There's for so some many people, things so many things could have been. that we probably can't go into here <laughs> but um but i do remember going back to something that sam said earlier on which is really interesting about the whole passing thing and I remember I, I I had to come out a lot because people didn't know that I was gay of course now everybody knows because I'm always banging on about <laughs> it but I remember doing a film and one of the actresses in it didn't know that I was gay and we'd got on really well for weeks and then she found out that I had a boyfriend and suddenly she changed towards me and she was like oh you're gay I've got loads of gay friends and suddenly we'd had a very jokey relationship and I'd made her laugh a lot but from that point, whenever I'd make a joke, she'd go, oh, get you, you bitch. And it was suddenly she started treating me like you treat a gay man. And and we lost a connection because I didn't know I didn't know how to be with her suddenly. Well, and interestingly, I know some gay men who are straight by sight, straight presenting, who have told straight women that they are gay and the women have almost been disappointed like oh you're not real gay you're not a proper gay like because they want the stereotype mm. um do you find some that as somebody who books a lot of stereotypes about lesbians um are you aware of this a lot yeah definitely and i get i always get the questions are you the girl or the boy and <laughs> um, that's a, that's a bit of a classic one and then and then how does it work then with two feminines or how does it work with this and they kind of everyone imagines that you've got a feminine that's the girl and a butch <laughs> that's the boy and then it blows people's minds when there's two butch together or two femmes together they're like what well two femmes together is porn isn't it that's basically what everyone sees <laughs> the straight men straight men yeah sorry not everyone everyone <laughs> but yeah that's what they see it as 
and I think it's really, but I, I, I resonate really with the the thing about the Shane, uh, <laughs> the Shane stereotype, because there was a lesbian bar in Manchester, and literally in that area, everyone looked the same. They all were all trying to like this lesbian haircuts, as we called it, and you know the the baggy jeans and the vest, or sometimes it was just a sports bra back then. <laughs> but I've noticed now when I'm out and about, um, lesbians are a lot girlier. There seems to be this wave of really, or ones you can't tell, you know, really feminine ones. That's interesting, um, so isn't it? Yeah, it seems to have really, really changed. Because I, I like boyish or slightly butch ones. And I'm like, where are they? Where have they gone? <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you, Sophia, as a fellow lesbian, in terms of um, the boyish butch ones, in the gay male world, I, as I hinted earlier, often, I mean, I do think it's changing, actually, but femme shaming, making jokes about very camp gay men was standard a few years ago. I have heard banded around jokes about butch dykes, truck driver, blah, 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 whatever. Um, were you aware of that or were the circles you moved in more inclusive and respectful? I think a lot of my friends look like the women that Sam is describing, but those are also my friends now, and they're my friends in London, and there are friends who are my age. When I was first coming out on the scene, I was friends with a lot of butch women, and some of them were fairly old school in the way that they presented, and who knows potentially how they some of them might identify now, but at the time it was very much like, I am a butch dyke, that was the identity, and there are still people who are just like that they want to be the the kind of woman who you know your figure may look a certain way you might have double d boobs but you put on a suit or in a tie over them and you say that this this is who I am and I, I really respect that and those women growing up were very important to me and yes I used to fancy the the boyish ones as well so yeah it's it's it's, it's, it's a bit say, of a shame Sam's nodding here mm. so clearly you two have the same tie <laughs> <laughs> we do we do we have to go to this bar and see where they're all hiding now um interestingly though um you know speaking about the kind of butch camp thing those of us who are i'm the equivalent of the butch lesbian with the double d boobs and the suit over the top um we don't have to do what sam talked about um i never have to come out to people everybody just assumes <laughs> it i mean besides the fact that i bang on about it all the time it's obvious in some ways that did mean i had a harder time at school um, growing up, but it did mean that I had to get my head around it. There was no choice of pretending I wasn't, of going into the closet. And though that may have been difficult at a certain age, we all know, all of us here, that things only get better once you have come out, accepted that part of you. So I feel like actually the privilege was mine for being very gay presenting in some ways. Sam is pulling an interesting face. I can't work out whether. What, who's got the privilege, Sam? Me or you? I can see both sides, you know, because I, I kind of, I, w I was just thinking what it would have been like just for people to look at me and go, yeah, lesbian. That's what I was trying to work out in my head, actually, what that felt like. But I think we'll never know what it feels like to be on, e on each side, will we? No. What, what about you, um, Sophia? I agree. I think it is on both sides. And I can see what you're saying, Matt, about your situation being liberating because you don't have to potentially spend your life justifying yourself to people. But we are always, regardless, still made to feel as though we need to educate people and, you know, give up our time to explain who we are and that we're human as well. I don't think that changes however you present. 
No, but one of the one of the things that made me think about I always thought people with passing privilege, people who could pass for straight, had it easy. It was only um we talked about um marriage and weddings earlier, Sam. I'm gonna talk about my boyfriend. I'm getting married later this year. He has um he can pass for straight. Um consequently he didn't come out until he was in his early 40s. Um, because when, um, when for, I mean, I'm not going to give all the details of his story, this isn't appropriate, but when faced with signs of how hostile the world was to him and everybody assumed he was straight, he could carry on um, going along that line. And what then happens is it's a much bigger deal to then come out when you're in your 40s. I actually know um, people who are straight by sight, who've got married, who've had kids, um, because it was expected of them, because it was a way to put people off the scent. Actually, that's really complicated when you're then coming out as gay. And there's a lot of hurt feelings, a lot of accusations of lying, of being used. Do you know what I mean? I'm starting, the more I talk about this, I'm starting to think I'm the one with the privilege. Charlie. What do you think? I, I agree with what everyone said. I think I can see both sides. I mean, I I came out when I was very young. I was brought up in Soho. It was a very accepting environment for me. I've always been really vocal about being gay. I've always been quite political about it. I've talked about it whenever I can. Some may describe me as an activist. So, I mean, I've definitely been a flag-waving homo from as young as I can remember. And it used to really annoy me when people accused me of being straight acting. Because I'd, I'd think, how much do I have to do? How much, how much more do I have to talk about it? Or, you know, prove that I am a homosexual man and yet there are still elements of the gay community who would say to me, oh, why are you trying to pass? Why are you trying to, you know, and I couldn't, I, I felt I know, I know. that that was actually quite insulting to me. And I used to say that quite a lot. So yes, there was certainly this idea that, oh yeah, it's it's, it's quite a good thing to be straight acting. And you still hear about it on the, the, the apps and whatever. It's considered something attractive, but I found it an insult. Okay, so um, we've all, I want to try and wrap up by looking forward and being positive. And all four of us, when we've talked about negative elements of stereotyping and um, straight acting behaviour, etc., we've talked in the past tense. Do we think, um, Sam, I'll come to you first. Do you think things are getting better, that stereotypes are diminishing and that young <coughs> gay men, lesbians can embrace their femme mannerisms, their butchness. You're nodding. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, a million percent. And I think we only need to look at things like TV adverts at the moment for that. There's there's literally a gay couple on nearly every advert at the moment. And it's really good to see because we've got prop we've got inclusive representation, haven't we? You know, we're there, we're visible. And it and it's it's and everyone has a friend that's gay now because there's so many people that are out. And they're like, we're in oh, demand. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's and it, it, it's like everyone's got a gay relative or something. And, you know, it, it's the norm now, um, I think. And it's it's come a long way in the last 20 years. Um, Sophia, can you envisage a time when we won't find ourselves un under any pressure to pass as straight or when the fact that you do pass as straight, you're not going to have to explain it and apologise for not being lesbian enough? 
I think we've made a lot of progress on that uh, in my lifetime and I can only imagine us making more of it. So I'd like to think that we won't have to have quite so many of those old-fashioned conversations and that when we are having conversations about who we are and what we stand for, it becomes about the things that we're into and the art that we create and the people we love and not just about, oh, here's this sexuality thing and please do explain it to me because I've, I've literally never thought about it. I think you'd really have to be living with your head in the sand for it not to have occurred to to you that some people might be gay fantastic right on that note i can't think of a more positive note to end the discussion for now sam thank you very much for joining us thank you so much it's been really good thank you finally we've had a lot of sunshine this week i know it hasn't lasted everywhere but there have been times when it's definitely felt like summer is well and truly underway um but summer clothes can mean more exposure for our bodies, more flesh on display. This can be a sensitive subject for queer people. Um, as a gay man living in a community that can sometimes be hypersexual, extremely body conscious, I definitely feel more aware of my body in the summer. I definitely feel more aware of other people's bodies and the pressure to have a good one. Charlie, how yes. do you feel about your bod? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm 48, so I'm getting older. Um, but I'm perfectly happy with what I've got. I go to the gym. I look after myself. I don't eat bad things. So, yeah, I'm sort of fine with it. He's got a good bod, basically. <laughs> it's all right, but it's it's all right. And uh, I don't have any issues with it, I don't think. But so. actually, talking about going to the gym, eating certain foods, is that because you're an actor and you have to look good? Or is partly, it partly because you're... It's partly that. It's partly because I'm vain. Um, it's partly because, you know, I, I look after myself. I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not obsessive about it at all. Um, far from it. Um, I, I enjoy exercising um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly into junk food. So it's I think it's just as simple as that, really. Sophia, how about your cracking bod? How do you feel about it? <laughs> I'm quite happy with it at the moment because my wife and I spent uh, lockdown two working with two very hench personal trainers from Bristol who were helping us lose the weight that we put on in a lockdown one. Uh, so <laughs> I'm quite happy with how I look at the moment. But, you know, show me a woman who has an uncomplicated relationship with her weight. They're quite thin on the ground. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of people beating themselves up on social media and thinking, oh, I've gained about 20 pounds over the past year, past 18 months or whatever it is and I just think cut yourself some slack if you've survived this and the onslaught on your mental health and you've gained about 10 pounds you know, don't let that spoil summer for you on getting out you know, there are some really beautiful clothes for bigger girls and some great influencers who are showing them off and great swimming costumes bras jumpsuits all kinds of things the clothes have become a bit more interesting for larger sizes so that's always something to uh, to embrace I think a bit more imagination in the clothing department but I'm quite happy at, at the moment uh, though I think the only time I've ever really experienced successful weight loss was actually in the run-up to my wedding because the white dress was a bit daunting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is interesting because bodies, body image, they're important to all of us and as you say women have been judged on their bodies for so long so there's a pressure there. Um, but do you think, I mean I do think that as queer people we certainly, gay men, there seems to be more, I mean if I look at straight people on Instagram now, they are there's 
you know, an increasing body pressure. But um, for us, it has, there's been so much focus on it. And actually, not just lesbians and gay men. If I speak to my trans friends, um, the summer, going on beach holidays and things, is sometimes a real flashpoint for tension for them and anxiety. Because, um, you know, their bodies are linked to self-actualization, self-realization, passing privilege that we've talked about is um, a whole other subject with them. Um, do you feel like for us as the LGBTQ plus community, um, bodies are, there's even more pressure and tension and Sophia, you're nodding. I'm not sure about even more pressure and tension. I think it's, diff it's slightly different for gay women than it is for gay men. I think historically gay men have been quite judgmental of, of, of how of how you, you look to each other. And you can see that reinforced on things like the apps, from what I understand. It seems to be a kind of, you know, the app itself is a bit like a piece of language that codes and reinforces. And with women, gay women, we don't have quite the same thing. But I was thinking particularly about our trans brothers and sisters and passing and the idea that it might be nice if we moved away from the idea that to pass as potentially the body that you want is the be all and end all. I, I like that there are more kind of shades of grey now. So somebody who is trans doesn't feel like they have to pass and that's the end game. And that and actually that's linked to the validity of their identity. I mean, at least, you know, at least we don't have that. I mean, as a gay mm. man, I felt like in terms of um you know, pressure to find a sexual romantic partner, it, so much was on the body. When actually, it's interesting what you said, Charlie, about, you know, being 48. At 46, I have realised that um, whatever state my body's in, it's not <clears throat> what makes me special. It's not what's sure. good about me. It's, it's, a si it's a side dish at best. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm always interested. I was, <laughs> I was at the gym today and I was in the showers afterwards. And, and, I was really interested in the amount of guys that were in there that seemed to be embarrassed about getting changed because of their bodies. I'm assuming I don't care. I'll stand, let it all hang out. <laughs> but I do because I don't I don't think about it in in that way, I suppose. I'm not. Um, I don't know. It's a weird thing. Is it an insecurity that they have? I don't know. Um, I think I think there is more pressure on everybody these days it used yeah, to be a very yeah. female thing wasn't it and it didn't really matter for men and now there's definitely a lot more pressure on men to have perfect abs and you know to look great on instagram well and going back to whether or not you revive your column about being a gay dad i'm sure actually that would come when your kids start to get a bit older mm. you're going to have such a kind of you know a, an awareness of that aren't mm, you mm body image growing up anyway however much flesh we're gonna flash over the summer i hope everyone manages to feel comfortable and enjoy the sunshine and i hope we get more of it and um, that's about it for this week thanks very much to my guests charlie condu sophia blackwell ryan atkin and sam marshall I'll be back with a brand new panel and some brand new discussions at the same time next week. Drop me a line if you've enjoyed the show, if you want to share an experience or you just want to have your say. If you're looking for us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK and I'm on at Matt Cain Writer. Or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk.